Luke, the ninth chapter. It was time for Jesus to die on the cross and to be taken up to heaven. And he had set himself resolutely on course to go to Jerusalem. He sent messages on ahead as he went to a Samaritan village to get ready for him, but the people would not welcome him because he was on his way to Jerusalem. And of course, James and John said, shall we call down fire from heaven and burn that Samaritan village? And Jesus turned and rebuked them and they went on to another village. Now, as they're walking along the road, there are others who are joining with them and walking toward Jerusalem. Remember, this is from Samaria. It's about 20 miles on to Jerusalem, maybe 30 miles. And as they're walking along the road, a man said to Jesus in verse 57, this is Luke 9, verse 57, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Now he's saying that out of just having been rejected a night's lodging in a Samaritan village. He said to another man who was following and walking with him, follow me. The, the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, why is he saying these things? Well, he's at the end of his ministry. He's headed to Jerusalem to die. He's now giving unvarnished statements of truth that we need to listen very carefully to. The dead will always try to pull a live person in Christ away from the walk with Jesus. They will give counsel and advice that is directly opposed to the will of God. They will counter. And Jesus is saying, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. There is a, a similarity in every revival that I've been able to study. The most recent is the revival that took place in Kentucky in 1801. As God began to move in power, he was coming against the deist whose theology had swept through the churches. A deist in simplest terms was a person who believed that God was the originator, he was the creator, 
And then he left every man subject to his own desire. So God does not speak today. God does not intervene today. God is absent from his creation and he's watching from afar. That theology began to sweep through the churches in Kentucky and Ohio. Then there were the Calvinists who held sway with the belief that a man was either the elect of God or was condemned to hell and had nothing to do with that man or his walk. It was strictly the sovereign choice of God, along with the other five points of Calvinism. In that context, there began to be a cry in the hearts of Kentuckians. There are letters that are available to be read, written between men of God, who were saying things like, the presence of God is so absent from me. I'm grieved by my lack of his presence. I don't know what to do. He's not speaking with me. When I read the scriptures, they're dry and they're hard to read. Men of, of integrity were saying, we've, we've missed God somewhere. We're living out our lives, but there's no power and there's no presence of God. And it was in that context that men and women began to pray and say, Lord, you have to change this in my heart. This has to change. I can't live this way anymore. And then God swept in and he began to ignite in the hearts of men and women in the worship service where suddenly the preacher's preaching and suddenly he's interrupted with cries of anguish from members of the congregation who suddenly were just shown a full vision of their sin. And they're so crushed by that vision of sin that they would sometimes fall unconscious to the floor. It was so shocking to them, so utterly disruptive, they would pass out. Now the reports indicated that sometimes these people would lay for hours or days, nine or 10 days, Doctors would be called. They would give them smelling salts. Nothing would rouse them. Their extremities became cold as though they were dead. There was no perceived breath entering the body. And yet the heart was beating. And the doctors would do bloodletting, as was the custom in that day, to try to cure them. They would put ammonia under their nose and there would be no coughing. There would be no awakening. And after even eight, nine days, the person would suddenly come to and begin to shout the glories of God. They had been totally changed. They had seen the heavens. They had had a full revelation of Jesus and suddenly they were utterly changed. Now, what has been identified to me as I've read this account, 
the Argentine revival, uh, revivals in Africa, revivals in Europe, the New England revival, after revival, there's been one mark that has been all the way through, and that mark has been an intense, burning desire to see men and women saved, knowing that they were going to go to hell. One boy, 10 years of age, the preacher standing up preaching at the camp meeting. This young boy gets up and begins to walk away. And a little distance from where the preaching was taking place, there's a log. He climbed up on the log. And then he began to preach under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And his voice was clarion. And the people listening over here to this preacher said, let's go listen to the boy. And pretty soon the whole congregation was gathered around this young man who was preaching because his preaching was so filled with fire and the presence of God, 10 years old. He's sweating, it's hot summer, he's sweating and he has a, a cloth and he's wiping his little face and he's preaching. People are falling down. They're on their knees, they're repenting. They're confessing sin. It's a scene of utter total confusion. As people respond differently to the presence of the Holy Spirit. Finally, he holds his handkerchief out. And he says, if you do not repent, you will fall into hell like this handkerchief. And he lets go of it. And it flutters down to the ground and he turns and he gets off this log and he's once more just a normal little 10 year old boy. He'd been preaching under the unction of the Holy Spirit. Then these people would earnestly go to family members. They would leave the campground. They would go to their family members who were deists or Calvinists or not Christian at all. And they would with weeping beseech them to repent of their sin and to turn to Jesus and to come to the camp meeting and listen to the word of God. Thousands of people came. It was one of the greatest outpourings of the Holy Spirit America has ever seen in Kentucky. Then it spread up into Southern Ohio but it was marked as are all revivals by a fiery burning desire to see the lost saved, to no longer put up with sin. And in Kentucky, the result was they were all kicked out of the Presbyterian church. And they convened what they called the Springfield Presbyterian Church totally obliterating all of Calvin's points and saying we will receive only the word of God. We will no longer participate in any of the rituals or the rites of the Christian church except as they are described and taught in the scriptures. We 
what I'm trying to say to you is the call of Jesus is so radical that it might mean we have no place to lay our head where Jesus had no place to lay his head. And then he says, verse 62, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Well, this is an agriculture community. Plowing was a regular feature of their life. Everybody knew what plowing was. And everybody knew why plowing had to take place. The soil had to be prepared for the seed so that there could be a crop. And Jesus is saying, if you put your hand to the gospel plow and you look back, you're not fit for service in the kingdom of God. Now, what's the significance of looking back? Well, first, when you turn and look back and you're plowing, your furrow will not be straight. You will miss whole sections that will be unplowed. To plow a straight furrow, you have to look straight ahead at a marker that you see out in the distance. You can't even plow a straight furrow by looking down and watching where you're going. You'll plow a crooked, a crooked furrow. I know I've plowed much. You can't sit on a tractor and look back and plow a straight furrow. So Jesus is saying, look, you're not fit for, for the work of the kingdom. If you put your hand to the plow and you become a part of the gospel of Jesus Christ and you turn aside, you're no longer fit to be a part of God's kingdom. You're left out. And of course, when, when I think about plowing and the gospel, I'm reminded of that story in 1 Kings. First Kings. Elijah has fled to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. And he's saying to God, I'm finished. I'm done. I've gone as far as I can go. And so the Lord says, okay, I'll give you some instructions. You go carry out those instructions and then I'll take you home. Of course, it was 20 years before Elijah was taken home. He had 20 more years of service in the kingdom of God. But the Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, 
son of Nimish, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shephat, to succeed you as prophet. Verse 19, so Elijah went down from there and he found Elisha, son of Shephat, and he was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and I will come and follow you. Go back, Elijah said, what have I done to you? Now, this is a bit shocking because you would think that Elijah would say, no, do not go back. Or yes, go back and meet me at such and such a place. Elijah's not going to take responsibility for Elisha. In the scriptures, every man is responsible before God for himself. None of you can be saved by being on my coattail. You stand before God responsible for your own choices. And in this case, Elisha has had the yoke, has had the, the, the cloak, the power symbol in that culture thrown over him. He's very clear he's being called to follow Elijah. But he wants to go back and say goodbye to his parents. Elijah says, what's that to me? I'm not responsible. This is up to you. You make the decision and the consequences are yours. The call is there. Every one of you here has been called by God. Now, what you do with that calling is your responsibility. It's between you and God. But if you choose to turn back from that calling, you are not worthy of the kingdom of God. And you have been severely discounted by the God of heaven. You have been now placed in a category of lost, of hell-bound. So what does Elisha do? He's in the midst of plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. He has 11 servants plowing with him in a huge field. He stops. He kills his ox. He breaks up the farm equipment. And he begins to roast the meat and pass it out to the men. They eat. He's burned now his plowing equipment. He has utterly destroyed all possibility of turning back from the call of God on his life. He has burned his bridges. I don't like the idea of burning my bridges. 
Because when you burn your bridges, you have no way of escape. You've cast your lot with the Lord God of heaven and you've said, I will serve you. I will belong to you. And there's no other course because you've burned your bridges. Now, sometimes we don't voluntarily burn our bridges. Sometimes Jesus burns them for us, either because we were too foolish or too slow. And the Lord had to burn the bridges for us. But sometimes we burn our own bridges because we're clear we are not going to go back. You've put your hand to the plow of the Lord. And as the hand is laid on the plow of the Lord, you are going to go forward and you will not return to the old way of life, to the normal life. I mean, let's face it. Elisha was a wealthy man, belonged to a wealthy family. How do I know that? Because there were 12 yoke of oxen. That's like 12 tractors plowing. What man has 12 tractors plowing his fields? Only a wealthy, big farmer who is plowing in this day well over two or 3,000 acres of farmland. I mean, this man was from a very wealthy family and he himself was wealthy. And he was walking away from that wealth in response to the call God had placed on his life to put his hand to the gospel plow, not to the plow of the world. Now, had he stayed, he would have had a very comfortable life. As far as we know, Elijah nor Elisha ever married. They were single men. Now we don't know for certain, but we get a hint when one of the kings is asking some questions and the response comes, well, Elisha used to pour the water for the master's hands. In other words, Elisha used to cook for Elijah. So there was not a wife there taking care of Elijah. It was Elisha who was taking care of Elijah. Elisha did not, reserve, did not receive the anointing power of God when he was called. He did not receive the anointing power of God. He was called as a servant to Elijah to prepare his meals, to prepare his campsites. He was called to serve, but he did not have the anointing power of God. And so for the next 20 years, he's going to serve Elijah instead of living on his wonderful wealthy farm. His life is going to be simplified and very direct and he's going to walk as a humble servant. You know, it's very difficult to learn how to be a humble servant. All of us in this room are so possessed 
as natural human beings to the desire for someone to serve us, husband, wife, workers, treat us with respect, treat us the way we'd like to be treated, let us be happy, let me be normal. With this lack of humility comes another very, very difficult part. Anger and rage because I'm not treated the way I think I should be treated. I should not have to undergo hardship. I should not have to suffer. I should be able to walk with freedom in what I desire and where I want to go. This lack of humility, this desire to be served means that we can be rude, crude. It means we can say whatever we want to say. I went to Panera for breakfast this morning and as I was walking, a woman came running ahead of two of us who were in line coming to the door. She swung the door open and let it swing shut. She looked, she saw us, and then she let the door shut in our faces. And the woman who was ahead of me opened the door with a look of what's going on and held the door for me. And then I held it for her, the first woman's husband. She came roaring into that Panera, went to the counter and said, I want a bagel and I want cream cheese on it and I want and I want and her voice was this loud. And the young woman who was at the cash register said, I'm sorry, ma'am, but we're out of cream cheese. She said, I am on my way to South Carolina. I got off the highway to come to your Panera because I want cream cheese on my bagel. What's wrong with you people? Oh, and she started to shout and scream about, and everybody in Panera's was looking like, what's going on? The manager came rushing up. Oh, is everything all right, ma'am? No, everything's not all right. And she went off on him. Crude rude, didn't care that she was disturbing everybody else who was in that store waiting in line, arrogant, I will have it my way or I will shout and scream and throw a tantrum. Well, all of us have that within us. None of us are above throwing a temper tantrum. There was a reason why Elisha served 20 years as a servant of Elijah. His heart had to be humbled. He had to give up his ideas of rich daddy and rich mama and normal life because he was called 
to receive a double portion of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And what's so interesting is when that double portion 20 years later was granted to him, he became a very strange bird. From every human perspective, he no longer functioned according to the rules of the culture or the society. He operated strictly in accordance with the will of God. He said what the Holy Spirit told him to say. He did what the Holy Spirit told him to do. He seems to be just totally out of joint with the common niceties of the day. Now, I know most of us here want to adhere to the common niceties of the day. We want people to not find us objectionable. We don't want people to be angry with us. Look what he did with Naaman. Naaman came to be healed. And he didn't come out and put on a show for Naaman. In fact, he sent a servant to say to Naaman, go dip seven times in the Jordan River and you will be well. And Naaman is angry. Look, I expected him to come out and put on this show for me and that I would be healed right here. Instead, he's being told, go dip in the muddy Jordan River. And the river Jordan is muddy. It's not a clear river. Elisha no longer cared about common niceties. God wanted to humble this Assyrian general. And he did it with his prophet, Elisha. But Elisha could function that way because for 20 years he had watched Elijah in his humility walk humbly before God. And now Elisha, as a servant, does not take his hand from the plow. He does not back away from his commitment to serve Jesus. Instead, he is subject to 20 years of servanthood to this man who walked away from him and said, what is this to me? You do what you have to do. And Elisha did exactly what he had to do. He had to endure 20 years as this man's servant. You know, I, I'm so clear in my heart. This Luke 9 passage, verse 23. If anyone would come after me, he must disown himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And that word for take up is literally in the Greek. He must weigh anchor and sail away. He must pull the anchor up from his life like Elisha pulled up his anchor. He burned the very thing that was his means of making a living. And he walked away from it to become a servant for 20 years. If anyone would come after me, 
he must disown himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. It's possible to live what appears to be a godly Christian life. It is possible under the old covenant to keep the commandments that are issued. Go to the temple at these set times, offer these sacrifices, abstain from this and that. Don't commit fornication. Don't do this. Don't do that. It's possible to keep all of those laws and yet be an utterly unrighteous man. How? All of those things are hard to do. And anyone who tries to follow Jesus Christ by keeping all the rules will find that those rules are very difficult. It's hard to follow Jesus unless you leave the law, you repent of your sin, and you disown yourself, and you weigh anchor, and you say, okay, I'm going to serve Jesus, and there's no business deal involved. I'm going to serve Jesus because he is worthy to be served. I'm going to become a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to follow him. He owns me, lock, stock, and barrel. Everything I have belongs to him. My life belongs to Jesus. Now, it's not hard to follow Jesus. I am not having a hard time following Jesus. If you're having a hard time following Jesus, it's because you've made a business deal. And you've said, I will do this and you will do that. No Christian can take that position. A Christian is a person who follows Jesus freely. If there's suffering involved, and there is always suffering involved if you are a follower of Jesus. Life does not get better when you say, I will follow Jesus in the outward physical sense. Life does not get easier in the worldly sense. Now, I made a covenant with God. Some of you have made the same covenant. You have said, I will receive from your hand, Jesus, only that which you choose to give to me. So I have a beautiful, wonderful wife but I did not choose her. I didn't pursue her. I didn't go after her. Jesus brought her to me and very clearly said, this is your wife. And frankly, I was quite upset. And I wavered because a lot of people were very upset with me, very angry with me. 
lies and slander and all kinds of foolishness. You see the evidence of that by many that I love dearly not being here today. The reason they're not here is they believe the lies and the slander and the foolishness. And they took sides. And they did not take the side of Jesus. I have to say with Elijah, what is that to me? It breaks my heart, but I'm not responsible. I have said I will receive from the hand of Jesus only that which he gives me. If it's a wife, thank you. I needed a wife. I needed a person who loved me and that I loved. A person who would serve Jesus with me, who would walk through the painful process of humility. Not easy being married to me. I'm not an easy man to be married to. You see, when we say we will follow Jesus, it literally means we are disowning our life, we are weighing our anchor, and we are sailing out of this world and its values. And we are now taking on the values of the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. We are taking on the values of Jesus Christ. And we are his servant. And we humble our hearts. We don't demand our way. We don't set up If God doesn't do this by this time, I'm out of here. You can be sure God will not do it by that time because you set that standard up. Because God will not be blackmailed. You cannot push God. So what am I getting out of being a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, I'll read to you what Paul said. Philippians, the third chapter. I'll begin with verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same thing to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Rejoice in the Lord when you're not getting your way? Yes, when you've grown up. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision who do worship the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh, though I'm, I myself have reason for such confidence. And then he foolishly begins to list all the laws that he kept at one time. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee as for zeal, persecuting the church as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. And what does he get? 
a flashing light from heaven that blinds him and puts him in the dust and utterly humiliates him. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Not having a righteousness that comes from saying, okay, God, I'll do these things and you do this. No, he's saying, no, that's over. That's garbage. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Righteousness that comes from God, so it belongs to Him, and it's by faith. It's righteousness or innocence where I have said, Jesus, I will trust you. It doesn't look very good for me right now. Brother Ed and I were praying together this morning before the meeting. He said something that was very insightful and scary. He said, it seems like we're as low as we can get. And then we drop lower. It's true. How much harder can it get? How much tougher can the journey be? It's already exhausting. That's where faith comes in. And you say, no matter what it is, I'm going to stand true to you, Jesus, and my, ha my hand is going to remain on the gospel plow. And I'm going to keep my covenant with you that I will only receive from your hand what you choose to give me. I will not go after what I want. I will go after what you want, Jesus. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect. That word perfect is complete. He has not been made complete yet. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining toward what is ahead. Hey, he's in jail. He's in prison writing this. He has gone from the highest pinnacle of a young man being placed on the Sanhedrin, an honor of honors in his culture. Wealthy, fabulously wealthy. This man has gone from that pinnacle of human effort and desire to a prison cell in a foreign nation because of the name of Jesus Christ. And the reports 
coming out of Nigeria, of whole villages being encircled by gangs of militant Islamists who close off the whole village and then go in and burn the Christian church, murder every man, woman, and child who is a follower of Jesus. Hundreds are dying in Nigeria. Two hundred murdered in India. Christians murdered just in the last weeks. One of the most populous Christian villages in Iraq has just been taken by ISIS. And they're expecting ISIS is even now murdering every man, woman, and child, raping the women, and then murdering them shooting, beheading, torturing the men and the children. In the last two years, more than 19,000 Christians have been murdered in these Islamic nations. 19,000. What do you think they're saying as they die? They're given a chance to renounce, in some cases, Jesus Christ and become followers of Allah. And they don't. They're dying. He says, from this prison cell, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, forgetting about my standard of living, forgetting about my high position on the Sanhedrin, forgetting about all of my honor and glory that before I held. I've forgotten about all of that. And I strain toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. As you know, Paul gave his life to bring as many people as possible to follow Jesus Christ. He was sold out. And then we're told in extra biblical historical sources that the Apostle Paul was finally in Rome, beheaded by Caesar and his life ended. We know all but one of the apostles was martyred. This is not an easy walk from the world's perspective, but it is what we're called to because there is a heaven above and there is a Lord Jesus who has called us forth. So the sin has to be dropped The ways of the flesh have to be denied. The lust of the flesh, the pride of life. Which is worse, the lust of the flesh or the pride of life? They'll both take you to hell. 
arrogance, hardness, judgments. The Lord calls us out of all of this darkness into His light. And it requires a great deal of patience to endure the suffering, but the suffering has a purpose. It makes us like Christ. It made Elisha like Elijah, except he got a double portion. So he was even more powerful. The mightiest works in the scripture are described by the actions of Elisha and probably Moses, two humble men who laid their life down. So today, do you have your anchor pulled up? Many times I've stood in the, the bow of a, of a sailboat, 43, 46, 50 feet long, heavy. The pull of the current is against the boat. That plow is deep in the mud or in the rock. How do you get it up? Well, you've got to start the motor. And you have to have one person at the motor, unless you have a remote control boat. And you have to pull up in the stream and loosen that. Sometimes you have to go beyond that planting of the plow, the planting of that anchor. You have to go beyond and pull it the other direction to dislodge it. And then you pull it up with a motor hoist. And when you finally get it up, you slow your boat way down and you drag it in the water because it has all kinds of muck on it and it has to be washed off. You don't want that on deck. Finally, you get that anchor pulled up and then you have to take your hose and finish the washing and scrubbing so the muck doesn't stink on your boat. It's not easy to pull up an anchor because we're anchored very firmly into what we want and what we believe. But the call to follow Jesus Christ is to pull up that anchor and go where he wants us to go and do what he wants us to do. And if you say, look, I want to be in charge of my own life, you can do that. Elisha did not have to follow Elijah. The call of God was not mandatory. But had he not followed, he would have been considered unfit for the kingdom of God. The call of God comes to a man once, maybe twice, but at some point the call will no longer be there. 
and then you just live your normal life and you die and then you go to hell. To pull up the anchor is an act of great courage. Although to others it looks like foolishness, insanity. To walk in the suffering of that decision often looks foolish to the world with great judgment. But Jesus begins to move and honor that decision to pull up the anchor. You're called today to put your hand to the plow of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to have as your primary concern the work of the gospel of Jesus, to win the lost to Jesus, to be used by Jesus for the salvation of the lost. You get to decide. But if you're simply following the rules and you think you have some kind of business deal with Jesus, you've missed it. Jesus does not make business deals for salvation. Put your hand to the plow and don't take it off. Oh Lord, you are the Almighty the king of heaven and earth. And this path is not an easy path unless we are utterly sold out and given to you. And then it will involve suffering. But the joy is there, Lord, because you've called us and you've provided, you've opened ways of escape. You break the snares. Lord, would you, would you come and move in our hearts? In the name of Jesus, amen. amen. <clears throat>